zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we'll be discussing Escape from New York, released July 10th, 1981. It was written by John Carpenter and Nick Castle, directed by Carpenter, and released by Avco Embassy Pictures. Carpenter wrote the first draft of this story in 1974 after a trip to New York City in its worst crime-ridden years, and also as a response to a growing mistrust of government in the wake of the Watergate scandal. Carpenter has also said that he drew some inspiration from Harry Harrison's 1962 novel Planet of the Damned. When he presented the script, Carpenter was urged by financiers to cast established actors like Chuck Norris, Nick Nolte, Jeff Bridges, Charles Bronson, or Tommy Lee Jones, but Carpenter had recently befriended Kurt Russell, working together on an Elvis TV movie, and happened to know that Russell was making an effort to shed his Disney child actor reputation. Bridges and Nolte were at least approached, but uninterested. Bridges would not pass on his next opportunity to work with Carpenter, and would snag a Best Actor nomination for his part in 1984's Starman. That whole list is a pretty decent list. I mean, the only person I don't think I'd want to see would be a Charles Bronson version of this. For sure. I think that the rest of them would have made a good movie. Yeah, and I, absolutely. And, and I, obviously, this was the best choice. I think that Jeff Bridges is the closest to Kurt Russell on that list. Yeah, but I I don't see, and maybe just the movies that I know him from, like I don't see him as edgy yeah. as this and, and as the other people on this list. But um, Kurt Russell was definitely the best choice. Yeah. I, I, I also disagree with Tommy Lee Jones as a choice. Oh, I think he could have done it. Yeah, I think he makes uh, sense. I mean, I mean, now he'd be the, the Lee Van Cleef character. Yeah, for sure. Carpenter was also familiar with Charles Bronson's tendency to self-direct, and besides, he was too old for the part, almost 60 at the time. Chris Christopherson's name was also bandied about, but ultimately discarded after the unprecedented box office failure of Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate. See, I would have liked Chris Christopherson. Yeah, I think he would have been good. Um, The only other name that seems really weird there other than Bronson is Chuck Norris, and they're kind of in the same vein. But I could totally see this as like a canon Chuck Norris movie. Absolutely, this could have been a Chuck Norris movie. It would have been a different movie. Yeah, I think Carpenter's talents would have been wasted on Chuck Norris. For sure, yeah. Carpenter was unable to attach a distributor until after the success of Halloween when he and Deborah Hill were signed to a two-picture deal with Avco Embassy Pictures the first of which was last season's The Fog, and the planned second film was The Philadelphia Experiment. But Carpenter dropped out due to script problems in favor of his old Escape from New York draft. That first draft was a straightforward action film, and Carpenter reached out to friend and Halloween actor Nick Castle to punch up the comedic elements. Castle's contributions to the script included dialogue adjustments, the entire character of Cabbie, and a new ending. Obviously, shooting on location would be prohibitively expensive, and they eventually settled on an older neighborhood in East St. Louis, Illinois, which had been ravaged by fires in the mid-70s and was still burnt out rubble in many places. They had to pay the city to shut off power to 10 blocks for their night shoots. The bridge, used as the 69th Street Bridge, was actually the old Chain of Rocks bridge over the Mississippi River in St. Louis, Missouri. The production actually bought the bridge from the government for a dollar, 
and then sold it back to the government for the same dollar after they wrapped the shoe. Well, that's interesting. I think it was just some legal requirement that they had to own the bridge for liability purposes. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it's an insurance thing. Jesse and I actually crossed this bridge on our honeymoon road trip along Route 66. (laughs) Or an adjacent bridge if this bridge was no longer open to the public. I'm not totally sure on that. I think I I at least remember seeing it on the map and planning to cross it. So we either drove along this bridge or if it wasn't open, then we drove next to it. escape from New York bridge. I know. That was my mistake. (laughs) Yeah, you could have hit one of those landmines. No, I had a map. I was going back and forth around them. Other shooting locations included some Los Angeles landmarks we'll be calling out and the first ever officially permitted night shoot on Liberty Island. Though I think that location involved all of one shot. There's literally one shot in New York for Mm. this movie. And I was surprised that there was no scaffolding. I feel like the last time we saw... That was much later, though. That was Remo Williams you're talking about. Oh, okay. Yeah. That wasn't for the show, I don't think. (laughs) Oh, no? Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) On a budget of $7 million, the film brought in over $9 million in its first 10 days. At the time, the biggest box office take of any Avco Embassy release. So they were still kind of a small studio at the time, but they have a lot of titles in 80 and 81. Like most of his films, the official copyrighted title begins with the words John Carpenter's Escape from New York. The German dub is renamed simply The Rattlesnake, or the German word for rattlesnake. No no Frankenstein? No, no Frankenstein in this one. (laughs) I definitely want to hear you try to pronounce the German word for rattlesnake. I didn't even write it down, but it would have been great. Let's not forget the classic John Carpenter font. Right. It's the same in every movie that he does, yeah, pretty just much. just about. Uh, and the character of Snake himself is renamed Hyena and Cobra for the Italian and South Korean versions, respectively. It's a little confusing to have Hyena with a big snake tattoo, though. Me. Whatever. Cobra is less confusing than Rattlesnake, though, because yeah. it's clearly a Cobra tattoo. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Author William Gibson has credited the film with influencing his 1984 cyberpunk novel Neuromancer, In 1987, Konami published the first installment of the Metal Gear series, created by Hideo Kojima, though the illustration on the cover box was blatantly traced from a production still of Michael Bean as Kyle Reese in the first Terminator film. Kojima has admitted to basing the lead character, Solid Snake, on Carpenter's own creation, Snake Plissken. In a much later game of the series, Sons of Liberty, Solid Snake even uses the pseudonym Plissken. I, this this movie reminded me, and I never played that game, but like actually reminded me a lot more of uh, Duke Nukem than anything. Sure, which I guess is more of a, it's a different Carpenter character because I think Duke Nukem reuses lines from They Live, the oh, Roddy Roddy Piper character. Yeah, but it's still it's still just that that like you know city that's in disarray that you're right. going around and you know. But that movie deals with aliens more than this one does. That makes more sense. than. That. And I'm, I'm pretty sure, at the very least, he says, I'm here to kick ass and chew bubble gum and I'm all yeah. out of gum, which is a line from They Live. Ah. But he also does Hail to the King, baby. Right. Which is a Ash line from uh, Army of Darkness, right? Yeah. So he, he uses a bunch of different action hero <laughs> catchphrases. And I'm old enough to remember when Duke Nukem was a side-scrolling game. I, That's not even I a thing. I never played it you just until it was up. 3D. <laughs> In 1992, a prequel to the film was released entitled Captain Ron, where a young snake Plissken, <laughs> alias Ron, is hired to sail a family's boat to Miami, and hijinks ensue. Is the eye patch on the same side? It is. Okay, oh, I decided to wonderful. be sure. <laughs> In 1996, the film was followed with a sequel entitled Escape from L.A., which is really more of a remake than a sequel, but 
with considerably worse visual effects. Oh, <laughs> like, I don't yeah. know what happened there because it's a more expensive movie, but it looks like trash next to this, yeah. even. In 2003, an official video game was in development featuring Russell's voice and likeness to be called Snake Plissken's First Escape, and the rights were snapped up by Namco, who announced a Christmas 2005 release. Sadly, the project was put on hold and eventually canceled after the death of Deborah Hill of cancer in early 2005. All that remains of the game project is a rough box art and a short gameplay demo that's easy enough to find on YouTube. I'll put it in the Twitter thread for this episode. And it looks akin to the Max Payne games with a lot of bullet time mechanics and okay. some gun kata visuals. It, it actually looks pretty fun to play, but it never came out anywhere. Alongside the game were plans for a full-length anime film, also to feature Russell's voice and a series of comic books, but sadly only the comics would ever see the light of day. I've included screenshots of the rough anime storyboards in the same Twitter thread. A remake was announced in 2007 to star Gerard Butler with <laughs> Len Wiseman directing, which would have combined an origin story with the events of Escape from New York, arguably not necessary. Later articles linked Brett Ratner to the project as director with potential leads Jeremy Renner, Josh Brolin, or Tom Hardy, a.k.a. Hawkeye, Thanos, and Venom. Of them, I'd say Tom Hardy seems like the yeah. obvious choice. Yeah, because the character of Snake doesn't have a lot of lines. Right. And I'm not saying that Tom Hardy's not capable of delivering lines. But we but... know he's willing to take parts that don't have them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In 2012, Luke Besson released a movie called Lockout, which was essentially a remake of 1996's Escape from Los Angeles, but set in a space prison. Carpenter shares his rights to the franchise with Canal Plus, who recommended a lawsuit and then successfully won a settlement in court. Canal Plus also suggested a case against game developer Konami and Metal Gear creator Hideo Kojima, but Carpenter turned down the option to sue because, quote, I know the director of those games and he's a nice guy, or at least he's nice to me. <laughs> so that's cool. I'm still thrown off by you saying Escape from Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure the title is la i guess it just sounded weird it does sound weird i'm gonna re-record that no no i like no, this better all right this fine <laughs> i mean at least we've addressed it <laughs> aside from his film career carpenter is well known for regular tours performing his own original music and for his voracious appetite for pot and video games yeah <laughs> so it makes sense that uh he's a, f a fan of kojima's and i think i circulated between us the the video of him trying to play the cardboard nintendo piano to play the Halloween oh yeah and he's game. like i can't figure out this dumb piece of crap <laughs> <laughs> i'll put that in the thread too because that's a really great video i love that nintendo just put it out anyway yeah even though he's like this is garbage frankly this thing sucks carpenter and russell have long discussed a potential third installment to be titled escape from earth but no development has occurred beyond the title an article over at Film School Rejects makes the claim that Carpenter, Russell, and Hill moved on from plans for a third film to pitch a 100-episode television series starring a new actor in the snake role. Unfortunately, the article doesn't cite any source, and television shows are not typically pitched in 100-episode batches, <laughs> so I can't speak to the authenticity of that claim. Robert Rodriguez was attached to a long-rumored remake, but that seems to have gone dark lately, but so has the whole planet. Was, was that in reference to the ending of Escape from L.A.? No, I just meant the pandemic. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> Although I did, Both. I should mention, at the end of Escape from L.A., I mean, spoiler alert, but it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Uh, the ending of the film is he punches the world code into this machine that fires an 
EMP that basically shuts off electricity to the planet. Yeah. So that it's not even a functional, it just somehow doesn't exist. Physics changed here. <laughs> so I like to think that if they were going to do Escape from Earth, they'd have to come up with a whole new like steampunk universe that replaced electricity with new forms of energy. Well, I mean, you can still have rockets, but you it would have to be all like analog driven rockets. Right. Yeah. Like, I, I like just V2 think it'd be rockets. fun to, to let them build that world. <laughs> In 2015, Deadline reported a potential prequel in development, at the time rumored to star Charlie Hunnam or Chris Hemsworth, with Carpenter as EP, but as far as I know, that's not happening either anymore. In December of last year, film writer John Walsh published Escape from New York, the official story of the film, but I wasn't able to get my hands on a copy of that before the record, but he details the entire production of the film from development through the release. We start with a title card. In 1988, the crime rate in the United States rises 400%. Keep in mind this was only seven years after the film was released, so they're expecting things to go <laughs> terribly wrong very quickly. A disembodied voice, apparently Jamie Lee Curtis's, tells us that Manhattan Island has been converted into a maximum security prison. We see a digital map of the island, like we're looking at it on a computer monitor. The entire island is encircled with a 50-foot wall. While the prison is surrounded with police, there are no actual guards on the island. We cut forward another nine years to the present of 1997. I'm not sure why this jump was necessary. I think we I could have just started in 97. I, I don't think it was necessary. We open picture at a guard station along the containment wall where reports are coming in that an object has been spotted crossing the bay. A helicopter moves in and finds two men rowing a raft toward the wall. They're instructed to return to the island with warning shots, but when they ignore them, they are blown out of the water. Although, it didn't look like they were given much time to actually change course either. Yeah. The helicopter returns to its post on Liberty Island, beside the Statue of Liberty, which is now being used as a watchtower. We meet a guard named Remy, played by Tom Atkins, who confirms over walkie that the two men crossing the bay have been killed. The camera tracks past a sign that reads Liberty Island Security Control, but as the guard shack clears frame, we're suddenly in Los Angeles on Sepulveda Dam, with a camera cut masked by blackness. A USPF, or United States Police Force bus, slows to a stop, and a prisoner is marched off at gunpoint. This is Snake Plissken, played by Kurt Russell, wearing an eye patch and handcuffs. Apparently the eye patch was Kurt's idea. Although it backfired because he kept losing his depth perception and had to keep taking it off throughout the production. Oh, really? I'm surprised they didn't give him, like, a, like a fabric that would let him kind of see a little bit they eventually poked holes in it so that mm. he could see where he was going but it still was enough of a problem that he would have to take it off between shots mm. snake is led down a stairwell into a facility and as he moves through the prison many guards seem to be standing around just to catch sight of him back on the dam a car pulls up and commissioner hauk steps out played by lee van cleef remy approaches and lets him know there's a jet inbound that they've been unable to identify it's seven miles away in restricted airspace. Remy and Hauk head to the radio room, where they still await a response from the plane, which has only identified itself as David-14 before going incommunicado. Suddenly, a call comes in from David-14. It's too late, asshole. All your imperialist weapons and lies can't save it now. We're going down. We're going to crash. David-14, acknowledge. Just then, word comes back from Washington that David-14 is the current code name of Air Force One. We cut above the cloud layer for a shot of Air Force One in flight, and then cut into the cockpit to see the woman broadcasting the transmission. The pilot and co-pilot have had their throats slit, 
and judging from the message she reads off a of paper as she flies, she represents a terrorist group, the National Liberation Front of America, that are upset about the racist and imperialist tendencies of President John Harker. She's wearing the same uniform as the dead pilots, so she must have either been a mole or a sleeper agent. Or she just liked it and put it on after the fact. How would she have gotten <laughs> into the cockpit, though? You can't just wander onto Air you, Force in, One. Well, okay, that's fair. I was going to say, in, 19, in, in 1981, you could just still wander onto cockpits. Yeah. And, you know. They didn't just pick up the president at the airport at a random gate. <laughs> You'd just be like, my mom's on the plane. <laughs> just walk on. <laughs> Harker is briefed on the hopelessness of the situation and handcuffs himself to a briefcase before he is escorted to the presidential pod, a large red egg-shaped capsule at the back of the plane. The president is given a watch that can read all of his health diagnostics and will relay his location to USPF. The president is locked safely in the egg, and the plane is flown directly into a row of buildings. Remy and Hauk watch on a digital monitor as the beacon for the president's pod crashes through the face of the building and plummets 30 stories down to the ground. Hauk boards a helicopter to the crash site. When they locate the president's pod, it's already been wrenched open, and I assume they regret putting a presidential seal on it now. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> The commissioner stands with many armed agents in the street when suddenly a stranger comes strutting around a corner toward them. He looks like an adult version of the kid who likes turtles from that one viral video, <laughs> but dressed as Peter Pan. I like turtles. Later we'll learn his name is Romero, and he delivers a message on behalf of the presidential kidnappers. We, we also will be introduced to several gangs in the city, and it seems to me that Romero comes from the crazies. Yeah. Which is a film of George Romero's. Right. And I think a lot of these characters, three in particular, are named specifically after directors that Carpenter is friends of. You touch me, he dies. If you're not in the air in 30 seconds, he dies. If you come back in, he dies. To prove he means business, he unwraps a bloody rag to reveal the president's finger with a ring bearing the presidential seal. I can get you a finger. <laughs> I can get you a finger by two this afternoon with, with ring. <laughs> with presidential nail polish. He starts counting down from 20 for them to leave, and eventually they do. By my count, the helicopters all lift off the ground with four seconds to go. Later, in his office, Hauk takes a call from the vice president. He explains that they've been forbidden from any rescue attempt, but he wants permission for a covert operation. When the vice president approves, Hauk sits down to meet with Snake Plissken. Okay, so is this the same location that he was being dropped off at? Yes, that's where Snake was marched off the S bus. Snake was already there. Yep. Yeah. Okay, this is the part where I get confused. Okay. That it seems like weirdly convenient. That, that he got there the second that this that, is happening? That, he, that, he, that the one person that they needed for this mission was happened to be going to jail right at the same second that they needed to pull him out and use him for a mission? I don't disagree. That does seem convenient. <laughs> okay. But he is being checked in. He's literally being checked into the prison mm -hmm. the same night, crossing paths with people learning that the president is inbound. Yes. It seems a little weird. Be like, oh, that guy, can I have this one? <laughs> yeah. Snake takes a seat, and Hauk reads his file out loud. It's all very commendable stuff, a couple purple hearts, until we get to Snake's actual crime. He robbed the Federal Reserve Depository. Life sentence. New York Maximum Security Penitentiary. The actual robbery scene was shot in full and survives as a deleted scene. Snake and a partner, Taylor, steal a billion dollars in futuristic credit cards from the Federal Reserve, and Snake could have escaped free and clear, but returns to the crime scene to assist his partner, Taylor, who is killed before Snake is captured. The robbery scene in the book is intercut with Snake's backstory, 
recruited as the best of the best for a suicide mission referred to as the Leningrad Ruse. The entire mission was intended to fail so that the Russians could capture a double agent to feed them counter-intel, but when things went south, the Russians saw through the entire operation and Snake's whole squad was killed except for him and Taylor. It is on this same mission that Snake loses his left eye to nerve gases when his protective goggles are shattered in an explosion. But back to the film. Hout gets down to business and shares with Snake the details of the recent plane crash. It was an accident. About an hour ago, a small jet went down inside New York City. The president was on board. President of what? That's not funny, Pliskin. <laughs> I love this whole conversation. Yeah. And as soon as I was laughing, as soon as he said, the president of what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't give a shit. Snake repeatedly asks Hauk to use his nickname, and he refuses to. The character's full name is S.D. Bob Pliskin. <laughs> Bob Pliskin. <laughs> but the S.D. is never officially explained. Hauk offers Pliskin a full pardon of his offenses in exchange for returning the president in 24 hours. Snake makes the comment that I made before when we reviewed the kidnapping of the president, which is that there's a system in place to replace the president whenever necessary. But Hauk says there's a war going on and they can't change horses midstream. A common excuse. But I thought, it w I thought it went deeper than that, though. That they specifically needed the thing that he has. Right, you know? but this can't possibly be the only copy of this one tape. It's just an audio cassette. Where they can go to the scientist and have him say it again and record it again. I don't give a fuck about your war. Or your president. We see Snake getting loaded up with weapons, and he's given a bracelet with a button so that he can call to be airlifted out when he finds the president. The plan is to land him in a Gulfire glider on the roof of the World Trade Center and for him to take the service elevator down. They give him a device to track the president's beacon. They warn him to stay out of the subways because they're the territory of a gang called the Crazies. Snake is led to a doctor to be given an antiviral vaccine. Hauk sets a timer on Snake's watch for 23 hours because there's an active summit and if the president doesn't return, then talks with China and the Soviet Union will collapse. Hauk says that the tape in the president's briefcase has to reach the Hartford summit before time runs out. When Snake asks what's on the tape, the most we get from Hauk is that it involves nuclear fusion in some way, and we don't get any more information moving forward, really. Once Snake has gotten his injections, the doctor demands Hauk explain what they were. Tell me. Tell me what? That idea you had about turning the Gulf fire around 180 degrees and flying off to Canada. What did you do to me, asshole? Turns out they weren't trying to give his immune system a boost. They've injected him with time-sensitive explosives that will detonate when the time runs out. Snake grabs Hauk around the neck and demands they remove the explosives, but there's nothing they can do until 15 minutes before they go off, at which point they can be neutralized with x-rays. I feel like telling him about the x-rays was a mistake, because I would just fly this plane to a Canadian hospital and ask for an x-ray the minute yeah. that the timer's going to run out. <laughs> Snake promises Hauk that he will kill him when he gets back. Snake is led to the Gulfire, a small glider plane on a runway. The Gulfire is towed up into the sky by a small plane. Snake watches a wireframe simulation of the city, but what we see on these monitors isn't actually a digital simulation, but practical footage of a New York miniature lined with reflective green tape under black lights. Oh, that, it, it's it, so cool. Yeah, yeah, it looks really good. I uh, I remember seeing uh, like a little making of video a long time ago that that showed them doing this, and yeah. I just couldn't get over how incredibly clever it was because it 
you know, you look at it and it, and, you know, it reminds you of, of footage from the 80s from a computer, yeah. like a wireframe type thing. Yeah. But like, it's so simple. It's so smart. It's such a simple, cheap <laughs> fix for it. Mm-hmm. Reportedly, the same city model was repainted and used on the set of Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. But I question that because that's Los Angeles. The buildings are completely different shapes and these wouldn't have had much detail. Well, plus the the buildings in Blade Runner are like really crazy looking yeah they're like, really complicated so that this trivia point showed up in a bunch of places but it, it doesn't it doesn't pass the sniff test for me snake takes the glider in as planned to the top of the world trade center and parks it silently on the roof it almost rolls off the opposite edge before jerking to a stop well at, at first i i thought when, once he had the anchor it's like why didn't you use it the whole time it's like oh he wants it to be on the edge yeah. he wants it to be as close to the edge as possible because he wants to be able to nudge it off when he's leaving right Hauk begs him for updates over the radio, but Pliskin never responds. Snake, are you okay? Snake? Snake? He hotwires the service elevator and takes it down to the 50th floor as instructed before switching to the stairs. As Snake makes his way to the stairwell, we see people running by in the background, unnoticed by him. This never pays off, though. I think there were scenes that they intended to shoot, but they never did, where he gets in a fight with some people here, but we just flash forward to Snake on the street, walking past bonfires and overturned vehicles he finds the remains of air force one demolished in the street and they actually found like a dc-8 in the area that they could go by and disassemble like it wasn't even legal to move it on the street the way they did it Mm. but they just left it in the street set things on fire and then took it back looked great yeah he radios to hauk that there were no other survivors and suddenly he gets a reading on his beacon finder he has 18 hours and 50 minutes left his tracker leads him to a dilapidated theater Inside one of the theaters, he finds a musical being performed by five men dressed as women on stage. Did you guys hear the lyrics to this performance? Yeah, it's great. (laughs) There's a cleaner version of the song on the soundtrack, but the lyrics go something like this. Shoot a cop with a gun. The big apple is plenty of fun. Stab a priest with a and you'll spend your vacation. Among the crowd enjoying the show is Ernest Borgnine as Cabby, wearing a cabby hat and bopping his head jauntily to the music. Snake walks past the audience through an emergency exit toward a stairwell, and only Cabby notices him pass through the room. When Snake senses someone following him, he catches Cabby at gunpoint. Hey, you're Snake Pliskin, ain't you? What do you want? Nothing. I thought you were dead. This will become a running gag of the film and actually comes from 1971's Big Jake, where John Wayne's titular Jake is told this repeatedly. I thought you were dead, Mr. McCandles. Not hardly. Snake moves down the stairwell despite Cabby's warnings, and we see a group of junkies tearing the clothes off of a drugged-out woman, and Snake does nothing to stop them, beside expressing mild disgust. In the next room, a pack of hobos try to take Snake's boots, and he beats them all up effortlessly. In the next room... (laughs) We see what looks like the president, tied to a sink on the wall, getting punched repeatedly by a large man. But when Snake kicks the attacker through a doorway, he calls to the president, but it's not the president, just a drunk guy. No, he says he's the president. (laughs) The president of what? (laughs) (laughs) I would have taken this guy back. He's got the thing, he says he's the president. Yeah, you deal with it. Close enough. He should have just pulled out the thing and pushed the button. I got him. I'm the president sure i'm the president i i knew when i i got this thing i'd be president this is buck flower 
wearing the president's bracelet. It becomes clear to Snake that the president has been dead this whole time and that they slapped the bracelet on a bum to keep his vitals going. He bashes the watch against a sink and all of a sudden the president's vitals flatline on the other end of the system. The technicians are freaking out. Snake calls Hauk and asks for a ride home because the president is clearly dead. Now, why did they take this bracelet off the president? Well, I mean... Because it had a tracker on it? Yeah. He was using a tracker to find him. Oh, it was a tracker him. and vital yeah. signs. Yeah. That yeah. makes sense. Okay. I wanted to bring up, too, I really like the simplicity but effectiveness of the tracker. It, it's just a, like a grid of like like a, uh, like five by five of LED lights. Mm-hmm. And you would just hold it and it would just give you a general indicator of where you it's like yeah it's a game of hot and cold yeah exactly <laughs> no, yeah, yeah except like he got right on top of it and it's like well the president's not here i guess i have to go down yeah yeah <laughs> he's up or down just gotta keep moving on the z-axis hauk tells him the mission is over when he returns the president and more importantly the briefcase back to the government listen if you get back in that glider i'll shoot you down you climb out i'll burn you off the wall you understand that Pliskin? With no other lead and 18 hours to go, Snake wanders the streets. He locates the president's egg, the Prez egg, and takes a seat beside it when suddenly a crazy person runs around, banging a wrench on all the manhole covers. Snake starts to follow him and then realizes that these are the crazies he was warned about who have taken over the underground portion of the city. The man was banging on the covers to summon his crazy brethren. Snake backs away from the growing crowd with his gun raised but they don't even seem to be after him, like a lot of them are just going past him without noticing. He retreats into a seemingly empty store called Chock Full of Nuts, which was, or maybe still is, a chain of coffee shops in the New York area. Suddenly, a girl calls to him from the darkness. You a cop? No. You got a gun. She bums a cigarette off of him, and he starts to ask her about the plane. She claims not to have seen or heard anything. Really? You didn't hear anything? A plane exploded like two blocks that way. She tells him she's stranded here for the night because she didn't get to her own territory before nightfall. After a minute, she seems to recognize him, and like Cabby before her, seems to think he was dead. So, I'm assuming that that she would probably be a relatively new inmate. Because, Maybe. Because how long has he been thought to be dead, I guess is question number one. But... Even if he had died recently in people's mind, how does the, how does news get in? Well, I would think that the government would want to further the idea that he's dead to dissuade people from robbing the Federal Reserve. That's, I suppose that's true. So maybe they're propagating this information and on purpose getting it spread around the penitentiary. Because, I mean, I can understand how Cabby would know because he he was there before the wall right, and after the wall. Yeah. How does everybody know who he is, though, in general? I mean, he's recognizable. He's got that one eye going on. But that's from re- that's recent. Not as recent as the bank robbery. We don't know when the when he lost the eye. I thought that you, could have been ten years ago. I thought you said it was from nerve gas. It yeah, was. But that it was, was a from nerve gas intercut in, oh, in Leningrad. Flashback. Yeah, okay. it wasn't during the bank robbery. Yeah, but I just like. You know, I I guess he has a couple of medals, you know, from the government for being. So maybe he's been on television. Maybe the bank robbery was huge news. Yeah, maybe. So so he is a celebrated criminal, I guess. And it got reported, oh, Snake Plissken and so-and-so Taylor broke into the Federal Reserve and stole all this money. And they were both killed in the act Ah. because we're so good at our job. So don't try it, anybody. (laughs) And everyone's like, well, those guys are pretty cool for trying to do that. 
That's why they're celebrated. Because they're criminals. We figured it out. For some reason, Snake is not shy about telling her that he's here to collect the president. And hearing Kurt Russell's voice say the president reminded me of his line from John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. You people sit tight, hold the fort, and keep the home fires burning. And if we're not back by dawn, call the president. When she learns he's here to extract the president, she asks to come with them, but it's too late. The crazies are upon them, literally bursting up through the floorboards and sucking her down. Snake runs out the back door. Uh, basically, the I, I think the implication of the crazies living underground and being cannibalistic is literally like they're zombies basically yeah and that's why they're literally coming up out of the ground to grab people and take mm. them away then why didn't they i uh, why didn't they care about him uh well, because he got away no but they didn't care about him when they were running past him in the street i don't know yeah that's not clear but i think they were they were trying to get him here even as he's trying to help her from getting sucked underground mm. but then he decides he's not going to save her and he ditches her he climbs up a stairwell and through a window into an apartment, pushing a wooden cabinet against the open window. When the crazies try to reach around it, he uses his Mac-10 to literally blow a man's hand off. In the novelization, we learn that this hand actually belonged to Hauk's son, a prisoner in his father's own penitentiary, indicated by a tattoo on the severed hand that reads Hauk. <laughs> because as he's sending him in, he says, oh, by the way, my son's in there. Can you let me know if he's okay? And then he shoots his hand off. And then at the end of the thing, he's like, oh, yeah, I found your son. He's fine. Everything's good. Don't worry <laughs> he, about he it. He gave me a hand. <laughs> yeah. Snake uses his gun to draw a door on the wall with bullet holes and then jump through it into the next apartment, where he kicks out the window again and climbs a telephone pole down to the street. He drops his walkie, scaling a brick wall, and now his bracelet button is his only means of communication with the outside world draw a door yeah exactly <laughs> it says to draw a door knock three times no snake that's once snake runs full speed down an alley when a cab suddenly pulls up driven of course by cabbie who offers him a ride he also mentions that he's been a cabbie in this neighborhood for more than 30 years meaning that he was a cab driver here before the prison was even built he just stayed here and then well, built a prison around yeah, him. Yeah, I, I guess it wasn't clear. I'm like, did he get arrested and put back in here? Or did he just stay while the prison went up? I could see it working both ways. Either he just stuck around and he's like, oh, that's that's great. These walls are great you're putting up. And then he just suddenly was a cabbie in a prison. Or that he was evacuated and then broke the law so that he could get back to his car. <laughs> like he did it and on purpose. And continue working, yeah. <laughs> like those old men who like fake rob a bank so they can go to jail to to pay for all their expenses cabbie wastes a lot of time lecturing snake about being in the wrong neighborhood but while he talks he lights a molotov cocktail and throws it out the cab's sunroof at the approaching crazies despite the rescue snake puts a gun to cabbie's head and asks where the president is uh, the duke got him everybody knows the duke's got him well, you don't have to put a gun to my head i'll tell you who's the duke the duke the duke of new york hey number one the big man that's who which reminded me of another borg nine film yeah emperor of the north yeah aka emperor of the north pole in which borg nine is a ruthless train conductor who faces off against champion hobo a number one played by lee marvin lee marvin is a number one ernest borg nine is shack face to face at breakneck speed in emperor of the north turns out the Duke is the top of the food chain here in prison. Cabby is hesitant to deliver Snake to the Duke, but Snake insists with his gun to Cabby's head. 
Together, they walk up the steps to the front doors of an abandoned public library, where Cabby slaps the front door with the sole of his shoe. A woman's voice on the other side of the door asks who it is, and tells Cabby to leave until he mentions that Snake is here and wants to meet with someone named Brain. The voice is intrigued and pushes open the door, and we meet Maggie, as played by Adrian Barbeau. She asks Snake what business he has with Brain, and he says he's looking for the Duke. Maggie, like Cabby and Chock Full of Nuts Girl, also thought Snake was dead. When Snake and Brain are face to face, it seems they have a personal history. Snake knows his real name, Harold Hellman, and Brain stranded him without a getaway car in Kansas City. He holds Brain personally responsible for the unspoken fate of their mutual friend Fresno Bob, who, in the novelization we learn, was skinned alive by the police. Ugh. He puts a gun in Brain's face and demands the president's whereabouts. Maggie and Brain are protective of the president's location, and Snake warns them that in 17 or so hours, the president will be a worthless asset. Duke has promised them all a flight out of here, but Snake's escape plan is more tangible. Brain thinks that he's bullshitting them, and Snake pulls his gun again. Brain agrees to tell Snake as long as Snake stops calling him Harold, because he doesn't, he likes to be called Brain. You call me Brain in here. But there's also inside the library there's an oil derrick running yeah. which yeah. is how he's making gasoline for this post-apocalyptic universe inside the library does that mean that like how I'm, I'm just trying to figure out the logic of how that happened yeah i mean he's this he's a smart guy he's brain and he's got all these books to study so he figured out how to refine oils here in the library but he just dug down and happened yeah. to find oil under manhattan i'm sure he was like uh that twilight zone episode but he kept his glasses and he stayed in here and he learned how to do it and he, he developed all the this tools necessary. has not been around this long. <laughs> it's been like four and a half months. No, it's been like nine years, but you're right. There's no way that he figured this out. That, that without, without the equipment or the power, he happened to just dig down and strike oil and build a rig for it. Yeah. I'm not clear what all got <laughs> left in New York when they kicked everybody out. Yeah. I, I know that there aren't too many oil derricks in New York city <laughs> that they could build from. Yeah. Um, I would think that it would be more efficient and probably easier to start farming methane off out of the sewer system. Maybe, yeah. Apparently their original escape plan was to cross the 69th Street Bridge since they've mapped out all the mines along the bridge. I, I still don't get this part of the plan in any case. Yeah, well, they so they make the claim that someone figured out where all the mines are the whole length of the bridge. Right. But that he died in the process, meaning that obviously he didn't know where all of them were. Right. <laughs> But also, there's a 50-foot wall. It's not like there's a door there or a gate. Right, but the mines are there to keep you away from the wall because you can scale a wall. The wall is very easily scalable. I don't know if it's easily scalable. It but is. <laughs> you just throw a rope ladder over that thing and you're done. You're out. That's why they shoot these rafts in the middle of the bays because if they get to the wall, it's a problem. <laughs> why, why leave a bridge there at all? Yeah. For your own purposes of getting in if you need to. But there's a 50-foot wall. And there's mines the whole length of the bridge. <laughs> don't understand. I don't bridge. know, guys. <laughs> they were going to form a caravan with the president at the front to avoid getting shot. Cabby can hear the Duke's car approaching and makes a run for his vehicle. Snake, Brain, and Maggie hide and watch the Duke's caravan arrive. The Duke is here to collect Brain's diagram of the bridge mines. He'll be very disappointed to find Brain is not inside. Snake asks Brain to take him to the president but Brain points out that they don't have a car, and POTUS is across town. Snake knocks out one of the Duke's drivers and hops into their vehicle. 
He loops around to collect Maggie and Brain, and off they go. As they move down Broadway, they are pelted with bricks by a crowd in the street. Snake doesn't stop for them, and continues driving through the crowd. He finds the road blocked with a wall of demolished cars, but spins around and backs through it full speed to escape. They make it to the rail yard, and Brain tells Snake which car the president is in. Brain starts a conversation with the men guarding the train cars, while Snake walks across the top of the train. We cut inside the president's train car, where he's being held by two men. They're wondering out loud why the Duke has any patience for Brain, but apparently Brain is the only source of gas in the city, even though it has been explained that most of the cars here run on steam engines now. Snake's arms reach out of the shadows and snap the neck of one of these guards, and the president tries not to react in a way that will get Snake caught. The second guard fires a crossbow at Snake, who tosses a knife or possibly a throwing star into his skull. Could you tell what this was that he hit him with? It, it looked like a knife, but... It's either a knife or like a shuriken, because they gave him all sorts of weapons at the facility. It's not the last time in the 1980s that Carpenter will direct Kurt Russell to throw a blade into a man's forehead, though. It seems like Snake was hit in the leg because he's limping toward the president and begins untying him. Snake and the president move alongside the train but are quickly ambushed by the Duke's men. The Duke, played by Isaac Hayes, goes to speak with Snake. Snake won't answer the Duke's questions, so the Duke grabs the crossbow bolt still sticking out of his leg and tweaks it. Brain insists that Snake has information they need, and the Duke cracks Snake over the head with a tire iron, knocking him unconscious. We cut to one of the USPF helicopters looking down on the city, scanning for any sign of Snake, which I thought they weren't supposed to do. They said don't re-enter or the president will die, but well, I guess re-enter, yeah. I, I imagine regular helicopter sweeps are part of something that they do. Maybe, yeah. Snake wakes up in a warehouse with a crowd of the Duke's henchmen surrounding him. Elsewhere in the warehouse, the Duke is using Snake's gun for target practice, shooting the wall all around the president. As Snake tries to sit up, we can see he has a tattoo of a black cobra rising up from his crotch across his abs. The men guarding him warn him not to move. Brain mentions to the Duke that Snake claims the president's usefulness might expire soon. The Duke forces the president to recite some complimentary phrases. What did I teach you? You are Duke of New York. You're a hey number one. I can't hear you. You are the Duke of New York. You're a hey number one. Duke tells Brain to go home and get the bridge diagram, and then, with one final shot, he shoots open the president's briefcase. The important MacGuffin tape falls to the floor, and Romero grabs it. A pair of henchmen move to untie the president. Later, one of the police helicopters is moving over Central Park and spots a crowd of prisoners waving them down. They set the chopper down, and the prisoners scatter, but leave behind the president's briefcase on the hood of a dusty car. Because only that one shot of the Statue of Liberty actually came from New York, what we see here playing Central Park is actually just a park in the San Francisco Valley with a matte painting done by James Cameron who was on loan from New World. The papers are still in the briefcase, but the audio cassette is clearly gone. Back at his home base, Brain has put together that Snake could have only gotten into Manhattan via glider to a tall rooftop. He makes plans to steal the glider and fly himself and Maggie out of the city. Back at USPF headquarters, the commissioner opens the briefcase to find that the Duke's men have scribbled their demands on the pages within. Amnesty for all prisoners in New York City in exchange for president. 69th Street Bridge tomorrow, 12 noon, no bullshitteries, dead. Where's the tape? Not here. Snake has two hours left on the clock. 
he's dragged shirtless and limping through the building into a room with a boxing ring. An entire room full of onlookers are booing him aggressively. They start cheering when his opponent enters the ring. An enormous Zangief-looking dude named Slag with ridiculous facial hair. The Duke watches from a balcony and raises his arms to silence the crowd. They sit in their best man. And when we roll down the 69th Street Bridge tomorrow, on our way to freedom, we're going to have their best man leading the way from the neck up. They begin round one, and each fighter is given a baseball bat. While the fight rages on, Brain and Maggie head to the Duke's quarters to see the president. When Romero answers the door, he's wearing Cabby's hat, and he says that he traded him for it, which made me think that Cabby was dead for sure. Brain claims that the president has cyanide capsules, and they're here to collect them to avoid a presidential suicide, but if that were true, wouldn't he have already done that? I mean, I don't believe Harker would, but right. if any president were going to cyanide himself, he wouldn't wait this long to do it. Well, you might be, he might still have faith in a rescue. Maybe. While Brain pretends to check the president for cyanide capsules, Romero calls his bluff, but when he gets too close to Brain, Brain takes a big knife and stabs him in the gut, while Maggie takes out a revolver and snipes every other guard in the room because her revolver has a silencer on it. Before round two begins, Snake notices one of the henchmen beside the ring is wearing his special button bracelet. He's handed a trash can lid and a bat with nails hammered through it to start the next round. The two men wail on each other while Brain and Maggie lead the president out of the building. In one swing, Snake loses his shield and his opponent tosses his own shield aside, raising his bat high in the air for a coup de gras. But Snake spins around him and smashes him in the back of the head, piercing his brain with the nails of his bat. So I'm pretty sure that, that Kurt Russell has a stunt guy in these, in these long shots for the yeah. fighting scene. And I only say that because I feel like the stunt guy is not as buff as Kurt Russell. Like, he looked really skinny in all of the long shots. The guy's name is Dick Warlock, and we've had him in other things yeah. before. But Because um, you don't forget a name like No, Dick you do Warlock. not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I think that's entirely possible. Although, Kurt did a lot of his own fighting here and was actually annoyed about it because the actor playing Slag was actually hitting him a lot of the time. Mm. And I guess at some point during the fight, he started like slapping him in the groin and saying like, all right, we're going to, we're going to do this fake because we're actors. Okay. And like the guy finally like backed off and stopped hitting him so hard. (laughs) Snake has won the fight. He moves to the ropes of the boxing ring and the henchman wearing his bracelet reaches in to grab him. Snake flips open the button and presses it. And on the outside, Remy sees that the tracer has been activated with an hour and 35 minutes remaining. The voice of the activated tracer device is producer Deborah Hill. Tracer activated at 1 hour, 35 minutes, 27 seconds. The once critical crowd is now chanting Snake's name. Meanwhile, on the Duke's balcony, he's learning that the president has been taken and disappears with a group of men. One of the henchmen calls out to the crowd that Brain has kidnapped the president, and they all scatter. Hauk and Remy watch Snake's blip on their map. The dot disappears after 15 minutes, which is exactly how long it was supposed to work. So they yeah. expected this. Snake reunites with Brain, Maggie, and the president on the roof of the World Trade Center. Unfortunately, some of the gang called the Redskins have followed Brain up here, and they've already pushed the glider off the building. So now nobody's going to escape, because these people are stupid. Snake demands the keys to Brain's car and the diagram for the bridge. Brain claims that they can't leave without him, because he knows where the tape is and how to read the diagram. Snake reluctantly invites Brain and Maggie on their escape plan. 
when they get back into the service elevator, uh, there's like a weird hand that's visible closing the door of the elevator. Oh, weird. So like they get in, the elevator door closes, and then from from the other side as the, the door closes, you see these two hands, like a hand come out. That are just pushing it closed. Yeah, just pushing them. it closed. I was like, wait, whose hand is that? <laughs> it's the set PA. <laughs> There's a couple helpful gang members that are like, oh, sorry, these don't close all the way. It, it, it's it's a funny thing that, that I always take for granted in movies that automatic doors in movies are probably never automatic. Yeah. yeah. There's always someone doing it. Just pushing it open. And, and it's the best, like when you watch like Star Trek The Next Generation outtakes, where like a someone big, misses a cue or yeah half like half of them are people walking into the door because the door didn't close or the doors <laughs> close on them yeah, yeah they're not through it fast enough <laughs> that's awesome in the lobby of the building when brain's car won't start snake pops the hood and finds a man inside with a crossbow to his gut well there's your problem right there yeah <laughs> snake looks across the room and sees the duke and two dozen more guys here to stop them the Duke has some kind of a bomb prepared to take them out. I don't know. He has like a device. Is it just the steam engine for the car? I, I don't know what it is. It's just a bunch of metal and there's steam coming out of it. And Snake whips up his gun and just starts firing on them. And that's enough of a distraction because this thing starts shooting steam out in new directions. And the Duke and his guys like scatter and Snake and his friends leave out the other side of the building. Why not just shoot the Duke? Yeah. I feel like this is a very much... Uh, of the cut off the head of the snake and the body dies yeah. right away. Yeah, that's true. Right outside the building, Cabby skids up and they all jump inside. Snake takes the driver's seat and they speed away toward the 69th Street Bridge. So uh, you mentioned earlier that you thought Cabby was dead because I also kind of assumed like, oh, Cabby yeah. must be dead. But now I really like the concept that Cabby just came over to the Duke's place and had a chit chat with Romero. Yeah. And he's like, you want my hat? I'll trade you for that tape. Yeah. I was like, okay. You don't even (laughs) know what's on this. But I was going to say, Cabby has no idea that that. But Cabby has his own music in his car. Yeah. So he's just like, oh, another, another swing album. Oh, so he just appreciates music. Is that what we're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Because that's why he went to the show and things like that. Uh, Oh, okay. So, so another cassette tape, you know, added to the collection does make a lot of sense. Yeah. Snake says they can't leave until they get the tape back, and Cabby pulls it out of his pocket. Huh? What tape? Where is it? It's tape from the briefcase. Oh, that tape. Here it is. You, you, you traded Romero your hat? How'd you know? <laughs> see, see? Snake pops the tape into Cabby's tape deck to listen for a second to verify that it has anything to do with fusion, and it vaguely does. Yeah. <laughs> the president demands the tape back, but Snake says he's going to hold on to it. He has 23 minutes left. As they approach the bridge in the cab, we can see that Duke is close behind them. We cut to the Duke's car, where he sweats profusely as he follows. I haven't mentioned it before, but the headlights of Duke's car are full-on chandeliers. Yeah. And it, it looks amazing. Now, it wasn't until this scene, though, because I, yes, up until this point, I thought, these are amazing. But now I'm like, this really obscures visibility out of the front window, especially when you're swerving around landmines. That's true. Yeah, it's <laughs> not super helpful. Also... I imagine that lighting things from above isn't as useful as a beam <laughs> going forward. Is something going forward yeah. from your car? Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think that he ever travels anywhere fast in That's the true. city. And he usually doesn't care what's in front of him because he's just going to drive through crowds of people. And that's why I was surprised earlier when people were hurling bricks at the Duke's cars. Yeah. Like, I, I would think, like, that crowd of people would be, like, Would hesitant. recognize the vehicle? Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, like, oh, we better not throw stuff at this guy. Or maybe the Duke specifically ordered that street blocked off so they knew it wouldn't have been him. Mm. Speaking of visibility, though, he also has a giant 
disco ball hanging from his rearview mirror, which is another thing that I feel like is taking up a lot of your peripherals. I mean, my understanding, though, is that, like, there are several gangs in the city, and mm-hmm. I don't think the Duke is in charge of all of them. I think that he kind of reigns supreme in general, but, like... I think he's like Don Corleone, where he's, like, he's the head of a family, but it's the prominent family. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. with you, but I'm just, like, I don't think the crazies report to him, technically, except for Romero. Yeah. Maybe he's, like, the liaison for the crazies. Yeah. Like, they, he's, he, he's like, their representative on the, on the council. <laughs> yeah. Brain is still shouting out instructions on how to avoid the mines, but Cabby is more worried that his vehicle just can't take this driving. Turns out Cabby's right, and the vehicle literally breaks in two the next time they, they go near a mine. Like, it, they don't drive completely over it, but the explosion is enough to just fracture the car down the middle so that the front seat and back seat are separated. <laughs> Cabby is tragically killed in the wreck, and as they continue across the bridge, Brain is still shouting out instructions on which path to take, but Snake and company are ignoring him. When he says go left, they all go right, and when Brain complains, he triggers a mine which blows him up in the air and kills him. So wasn't he wrong? He was wrong. This So the map wasn't entirely useful to them. I, I assume, like, that the triggers for these mines must be very, very, very well concealed. Yeah. Because, like... How else would you accidentally step on exactly yeah, on a exactly. mine? Yeah, I, exactly. I, I feel like most landmines... You know they're they're buried in dirt or things like that that you that you can easily conceal. This is a concrete bridge. Yeah. So unless they've dug holes into the concrete, which I think would then, fracture the whole bridge, which they, is not their goal. Yeah, and then and then cover them with a concrete-looking substance <laughs> that would still be sensitive enough to step on. Yeah. I think what would have been better, because I like to think that Brain is a smart guy and that he knows what he's doing is that he's like, I said go right, and then at the last second he's like, oh, wait a minute, and he like flips the map in his hands like, fuck, I had it upside down, and and then, then he blows, blows up. up. Yeah. Yeah. But like, is making a maze on a bridge full, like of landmines really a good strategic way to protect something? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and then have it lead to a 50-foot wall would be ideally the best possible. Okay. <laughs> it, it, it seems like it would be easy enough to like coax a bunch of crazies out onto the bridge and just let them blow just up blow until up you all the mines yeah you just figured all right they all must be gone now yeah i was just like if if i were the duke i'd just be like hey there's no mines on this bridge now we deactivated them and just let people deactivate them with their own heads yeah you could just like squid game the the bridge and <laughs> you know eventually somebody's gonna make it across because everybody died in front of you i like squid game as a verb <laughs> squid game the bridge <laughs> maggie is obviously distraught to have lost her i guess like arranged husband yeah <laughs> like he, they they make the point earlier that she was given as a gift to brain because brain provides gas for everyone but uh she she clearly has feelings for him or stockholm syndrome for him or that too yeah <laughs> and uh snake does his best to convince her forward maggie he's dead but instead of tagging along she holds out her hand as if to request a gun at first I thought it was for suicide, but I was wrong. Snake tosses it to her and she decides to stand guard on the bridge, firing back at the Duke's it's car. Kind of suicide. Yeah. It's suicide while helping right. you on but the I way. But I thought out. it was literally just a I don't want to be in this world. Yeah, no, I yeah. I, I hear it's, you. But it, I think it she is knows. a suicide mission for sure, yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's no use. She can't stop the Duke, and he crushes her with his vehicle. For an early test screening, they didn't have the insert of Maggie all bloody in the road. 
and people were confused about whether she survived or not. So Carpenter and Barbeau actually staged this insert in their own garage with their own cars and fake blood at home. <laughs> And then spliced it into the movie. Wonderful. The specific test audience member who brought the omission to Carpenter's attention was a 15-year-old J.J. Abrams, brought to the test screening by his producer, Father Gerald Abrams. J.J. became a big fan of the film, and especially its poster, which features the disembodied head of the Statue of Liberty blocking a Manhattan intersection, an image which doesn't appear in the actual film, but would later show up in J.J. Abrams' own film, Cloverfield, as a direct reference to this film. Yeah. Remy reports to Hauk that there were four people spotted crossing the bridge on foot, but at this point I would guess it's just Snake, the President, and Duke, since Maggie is now splattered on the road. Snake and the President reach the wall at the end of the bridge, just as the guards lower a harness to lift the President up with. They get POTUS over the wall, but before they can lower the harness again, the Duke uses Snake's own Mac-10 to take out the guards on the wall and draw a line of bullet holes above Snake's head. Again, just shoot Snake. You don't have to sh shoot a line as a warning. Looks like the president made it over safely, though. The Duke comes looking for Snake, and they are quickly caught in a wrestling match. Snake punches the Duke out, but then stupidly runs away, leaving his gun within reach of his lightly dazed enemy. Snake grabs the harness, which has been lowered again, but it stops halfway up the wall when someone, I think President Harker, flips mm -hmm. a switch on the tow cable. When the Duke rushes out to shoot at Snake, the President suddenly hits him with another automatic rifle from the top of the wall. With the Duke killed, the President flips the switch back and Snake is lifted the rest of the height of the wall. When Snake touches the ground on the other side, a doctor is waiting to perform the emergency x-ray and deactivate the 5G chip from his vaccine. So this entire time, though, I was like, did they actually put anything in him? Because they didn't have to. And they, that's, just that's to the they just had to tell of, him. That's the twist in Escape from L.A. <laughs> yeah. it's the, oh, is the, it? It's a placebo, yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah, because he didn't have to. It didn't yeah. matter either way unless you really wanted him dead. Snake looks at his watch and sees the last two seconds tick down. We cut two moments later and the president is being prepped for a television address and Snake asks for a moment of his time. He asks the president what he thinks about all the people who died to get him out of the city. He thanks them all for their sacrifice and Snake is not impressed. He walks away from the president toward Hauk. You gonna kill me now, Snake? I'm too tired. Maybe later. As cool as that line is, I feel like the consensus is that people really wanted Snake to kill Hauk here at the end of this adventure. But Hauk has another job in mind for Snake. We'd make one hell of a team, Snake. The name's Pliskin. That's funny because it's the opposite of what he said earlier. Right, because <laughs> the joke is that it's not that you're using the wrong word. It's yeah. that he just doesn't want you to call him anything. So he's going to keep telling you the opposite thing until you stop talking to him. Oh, see, like early, I, I took it differently. Like, earlier I felt like he was like, no, 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 don't call me that. Like, I'm cool, call me Snake. And now he's like, you're not my friend. You don't get to call me Snake. Yeah, but he didn't think he was his friend before. No, but it was more like a... Like, like a, this is what people call me. Yeah. And he's like, you don't call me what people call me. Yeah. You call me what you call me. My friends call me Murphy. You can call me RoboCop. Call me Bob. My <laughs> real first name is Bob. So is yours, Bob Hauk. We're both Bobs. The Bobs. 
<laughs> I wouldn't say I've been missing it, Bob. <laughs> the president addresses the camera live on air and inserts the tape into the tape deck, but what plays from the speakers is not the spoken word nuclear fusion tape that we heard earlier, but a swing dance song, specifically Bandstand Boogie. We cut back to Snake limping across the Sepulveda Dam and unspooling the fusion tape in his hands, and we cut to black. So presumably, if the president had given a better answer, he would have gotten the tape that he wanted. I don't know what answer he could possibly have given that would satisfy Snake. I'm, I, but I'm just saying, like, yes, I think it, it was a like test he that made, he failed. Yeah. yeah, he made a choice here. He had both options, and he because he didn't destroy the tape before this, right? Presumably, the president had a chance to redeem himself, and he failed. Yeah, yeah. And it's in a way, it's g- good that Cabby died because if he survived, he would have lost both tapes, and we'd, he would have nothing to jam out to while he drives around. I don't think he was jamming out to whatever nuclear fusion. He would have yeah. if that was all he had left. <laughs> He's like, what kind of music do you like? I'm really into fusion. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally just ingredients for cold fusion. Well, That's not what I thought you meant, but I, I, sure, Cavi, let's listen to this. I, I think it would have made a really funny moment for a post credit scene that there's a whole other musical that's being done, but it's to the fusion. (laughs) It's a whole new musical dance number, but it's just to like the ingredients of how to make fusion. (laughs) Or it just cuts to like cabby driving and like speaking perfectly in unison with the recording of the fusion while like dancing around. (laughs) That's the end of our film. Uh, The second film is basically the same thing, except for instead of the president, it's the president's daughter. Mm. And the device isn't an audio cassette uh with cold fusion instructions it's a device that you can use to turn off electricity everywhere specifically it's designed to target locations right but so you can type in a location code yeah and it will erase electricity in that shape of the planet <laughs> okay. uh, but there's there's a stand-in for each character in this film so the uh the ernest borgnine character is replaced with uh steve buscemi who's like He's one of those people who has maps to the star's homes. Um, and that's becomes the new tape, the thing that he swaps th- for the device. Who else is there? The The chock full of nuts girl is replaced with that girl from from Hot Shots. Um, but she also, you know, she's like, oh, I know who you are, and then dies immediately. Uh, and I remember Bruce Campbell as the Surgeon General. Yeah, the Beverly. Surgeon General of Beverly Hills. <laughs> and his face is like insane plastic surgery yeah. face. Um, and he's... Uh, performing just insane surgeries on people and collect they're basically the crazies Mm -hmm. because he's collecting like organs and body parts from people to give to other people because they need constant plastic surgery to survive god i don't think i've seen that movie since it came out (laughs) yeah and then yeah there's the part where he surfs in the la river yeah with uh peter fonda i think is the the surfer dude and then uh what are the other major points? There's one other thing that I forget. Oh, the the basketball scene is great. Oh. Uh, instead of doing the the boxing match, he gets brought to a basketball court, and he has to sink like four shots in a certain amount of time, and uh, and he just he the last one he rocks is a full court shot, and you can tell that Kurt Russell made the full court shot mm-hmm. in the take because he just hucks it with his arm, and there's no there's no effects to it at all because the effects in that movie are so terrible you'd be able to tell. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> That's where, like, the he's got, like, the boat that comes out of the 
sewer tunnel or something like that. Yeah. And it's but just, instead of taking a glider in, he takes a submarine in. But you get basically the same camera angle of the like the camera in the vehicle pointed at his face with that, you know, the Tony Stark shot of yeah. like him uh, traveling. And yeah, the he jumps out of the submarine just as like this dock breaks apart and falls into the water, but it's just so bad looking. Um, yeah. But this movie. This movie is great. It was really cheap. Um, and they still managed to make it look like New York was a prison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is impressive. Uh, I feel like if someone gave me $7 million to make a movie with, I'd be like, we're going to shoot this in my bedroom <laughs> because I don't know how to make $7 million, build an entire city and have Air Force One crashed right? in the middle of an intersection. But uh, they pulled it off and I feel like they pulled it off really well. The only stuff that looked super cheap to me was when he's jumping through the wall between the apartments that the wall looks pretty flimsy but it could just be a shitty apartment Mm -hmm. um but other than that everything works really well i feel like it's a pretty solid universe that i believed it's really dark but uh dean kundi is a professional and so you don't lose any details that you need but there's just almost the whole film takes place at night the daytime hours of of this 24-hour period go by really quickly (laughs) and then it's dark again all of a sudden but um but yeah i I really enjoy this film i think the performances are great from everybody i think everyone was perfectly cast i think uh my only real complaint is that a lot of times kurt russell's gruff talk is a little too quiet yeah like he's like uh, i was like sorry could you repeat that i didn't didn't quite get that uh but that's like my own real only real criticism yeah of the film i actually feel like his snake in the second film is the only improvement from the first film and i feel like part of that is because this is really the first time that kurt russell is doing this character mm-hmm. yeah before this he's always like like the goody two-shoes kid and or or elvis <laughs> but yeah, yeah aside from that like this is the first time that he's playing any kind of a grumpy growly character well but and on top of that, he's he's lived with the concept of this character for right. well over a decade. So when then, he got into the mid-90s and he was like, I can do that growly voice now. And it's like, and, yeah, because you've also played a bunch of grumpy dudes since yeah, then. Yeah, but it's also like, I think it's an exaggeration of himself in this in this movie. Right, but I, I don't think it ever feels forced in Escape from L.A. Mm-hmm. But specifically in his first encounter with Hauk in this film, I feel like there's parts of it where I'm like, it just sounds like a guy trying to sound growly and not really being that growly. It's growly Pete. <laughs> growly, 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 growly. <laughs> what is that from? It's from Trolls World Tour. <laughs> oh, perfect. Of course. <laughs> but yeah, I really like this movie. Um, it's still of the Carpenter Russell uh, co-ops, I, I think it's my least favorite. Um, or, or, I mean, aside from Escape from L.A., obviously, it's worse than this. But... I like the thing more, and I like Big Trouble in Little China the most of the four. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that those movies are better than this one, but yeah. this one's still great. Yeah, yeah, thumbs, thumbs up. up. Yeah, 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 three thumbs, thumbs up, up for sure. Yeah. Uh, do we know what we're doing, Letterboxed? Yeah, uh, I have this one at number eight. All right, it is above The Howling, but below Outland. Richard, uh, I have it at number thirteen. Okay. Uh, so it's below History of the World, but above The Howling. I have it in tenth, which is just under Excalibur and just above Stripes. And this is out of eighty nine. Our writer, director, and 
uh, music composing came from John Carpenter. Um, he also in the film plays Secret Service number two, helicopter pilot, violin player, which I think is during the the musical right, segment. Right. Um, he also composes most of his own scores and is regularly touring the music that he performs in these movies. Uh, we saw him last year acting as like the assistant to Father Malone in the church in the fog, where at the beginning he's like, oh, uh, when do I get my paycheck? And he's like, oh, you know what? Why don't you just sleep in tomorrow and come in a little late? That's fine. It's like, yeah, but my my paycheck. Last season he directed The Fog. Uh, Before that he directed Dark Star, an Elvis TV movie, Assault on Precinct 13, and Halloween, and he later helms The Thing, Christine, Starman, Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, They Live, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, which I always forget was him. Yeah. You don't think of Carpenter and Chevy Chase working together very often. Uh, In the Mouth of Madness, Village of the Damned, Escape from L.A., and Ghosts of Mars. He also wrote Halloween 2, which we'll cover later this season. Uh, Co-writer here was Nick Castle, who played the pianist in that musical segment. Uh, He also plays The Shape, a.k.a. Michael Myers, in several installments of the Halloween series, including the first one, and I think... David Gordon Green's most recent films. Yes. I think he comes back to play the character. Before that, he also played the alien in Carpenter's Dark Star. He's also an accomplished writer-director, having written August Rush, This, Hook, and Tag the Assassination Game, which we'll cover next season. Hook, of course, uh, we decided he borrowed whole cloth from the island. <laughs> I, th- I don't think we decided that. We did. Uh, he was also originally set to direct it before it was handed off to Spielberg which I guess Spielberg would have preferred because Spielberg's so embarrassed by his best movie. <laughs> he also directed The Last Starfighter yeah. and The Tag and Dennis the Menace and Major Pain and Mr. Wrong. The, is that the... I, I always get... Mr. Wrong is the one <laughs> Thank you. with Bill Pullman and Ellen <laughs> DeGeneres. Okay, I was going to say the Ellen one. Yeah, it is but that one. The, then there's a... Is it Mr. Wright or... Mr. Wright is with Anna Kendrick and Sam Rockwell. And there's another oh, Mr. Wright. Spelled differently. Spelled differently. That's not that one. Mm. The music here was from Alan Howarth. Uh, he's a regular Carpenter collaborator on Halloween 2, Christine, Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, and They Live. Cinematographer Dean Kundi, uh, regular DP for the works of Zemeckis, Spielberg, and Carpenter. Before this, he lit Halloween. And last season, he lit The Fog, Galaxina, and Without Warning. He's back this year for Halloween 2, and later DP's The Thing, Halloween 3, Romancing the Stone, The Back to the Futures, Big Trouble in Little China, Roger Rabbit, Roadhouse, Hook, Death Becomes Her, Jurassic Park, The Flintstones, Casper, Apollo 13, and most recently, his work can be seen in the Disney Plus series The Book of Boba Fett. He did a couple episodes of that. Paul Reiser. That was the the other Mr. Wright. Yeah, that sounds familiar. It's funny that they made a whole movie about Ellen DeGeneres finding the wrong man. <laughs> <laughs> Editor was Todd C. Ramsey. This was his second editing credit after Star Trek The Motion Picture. He's back editing The Thing for Carpenter the following year and later Exorcist 3. Kurt Russell played Snake Plissken. The name Snake Plissken actually came from a friend of a friend of Carpenter's with the surname Plissken and the nickname Snake after a tattoo on his abdomen. Russell based his performance on a combination of a wide variety of characters, including Bruce Lee, Darth Vader, more obviously Clint Eastwood, but specifically Robert Ginty, from his turn in The Exterminator, which we covered last season. Though Ginty actually reminds me more of Jack Burton, but maybe that's just aesthetically he looks more like Jack Burton. Kurt Russell considers this his favorite of his own films, and Pliskin was his favorite character to play. He's done five films with Carpenter, starting with 
the lead of the Elvis TV movie, and then this, The Thing, Big Trouble in Little China, and the sequel to this, Escape from L.A. He's done three with Tarantino now, Death Proof, Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and he's in a few Fast and the Furious movies. I think he's in three of them now. And he's also played Santa a couple of times. <laughs> we'll hear from him in our next episode, where he provides the adult voice of Copper in Disney's The Fox and the Hound, released the same day in theaters, July 10th, 1981. Way to shed that Disney persona. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not his fault, because he recorded that back when he was doing the Elvis TV movie, when he's like, I'm tired of doing these Disney things. And yeah. then two movies later, the Disney movie finally came out. It takes a long time to animate things. Yeah. Especially when Don Bluth fucks your studio in the middle of the project. <laughs> I'm going to make my own studio with Blackjack and, and hookers. hookers and Gary Goldman. <laughs> in addition to playing Elvis Presley in Carpenter's TV movie, his very first IMDb credit was for an appearance in an Elvis movie as a child. And he would play an Elvis impersonator in uh, 3000 Miles of Graceland. Right. Doesn't he also play Elvis in something else? Does he play Elvis in that one shot of true romance where it's like out of focus you know what he might i can't remember i know exactly what you're talking about it's not coming up on carousel's page okay maybe that wasn't him lee van cleef played hauk bob hauk van cleef shot his entire role in a single night but as a result pickups were impossible and some out of focus shots had to be left in the cut lots of classic western credits for van cleef uh, man Who Shot Liberty Valance, a couple of the Man With No Name films. I think he's in the second and third ones. He's Captain Apache in Captain Apache. One of his final credits was in Cannibal Run 3, a.k.a. Speed Zone, but we saw him last as McCarn in The Octagon. He also appeared with Kurt Russell's father, Bing Russell, in Gunfight at the OK Corral. Obviously, Kurt would go on to reenact the same gunfight in what some would call a self-directed turn as Marshal Wyatt Earp in 1993's Tombstone. Ernest Borgnine played Cabby, We've seen him so far in When Time Ran Out and High Risk. He also starred as Marty in Marty, for which he won his Oscar, and Dominic Santini on Airwolf. Though the role has widely been reported to have been written specifically for Ernest Borgnine, I did find some sources claim that it was offered to Mickey Rooney first. If that was true, which I couldn't corroborate outside of IMDb trivia, then Rooney and Russell were almost both in This and Fox and the Hound the same day, <laughs> where they voiced the adult versions of the titular characters. Borgnine is also Mermaid Man on SpongeBob SquarePants and himself on The Simpsons, where Homer steals his knife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mickey Rooney also shows up as himself on The Simpsons, auditioning for the part of Fallout Boy. Donald Pleasance played President. He's just credited as President here, but I think his accepted canon name is President Harker. He was Dr. Loomis in the Halloween movies. He's the forger in The Great Escape. He's one of several actors to portray Blofeld in the Eon canon. We saw him most recently as pickering in the monster club for his part in this film pleasance drew from his own wartime experience as a prisoner of war tortured by the germans in world war ii hmm. jerks isaac hayes played the duke he's the composer of shaft which we covered in a patreon review last year and for which he won an oscar he comes back to appear in i'm gonna get you sucka cb4 robin hood men in tights and he spent his later years voicing chef on south park until he suffered a stroke in 2006 the rumor at the time was that he'd left the show over its treatment of the Church of Scientology, but his son later explained that Hayes was not in a position to write his resignation letter and that someone from the church did it for him. So he did not have the problems with the show's Scientology jokes that people claimed that was something made up by the church themselves. 
Season Hubley played Girl in Chock Full of Nuts. In early drafts of the script, the character was named Maureen. Right before this, she was Nikki in Hardcore with George C. Scott, and then she was Princess in Vice Squad. She had previously played Priscilla Presley opposite Kurt Russell as Elvis for Carpenter's TV movie, and I don't want to sound mean, but I couldn't figure out why she had special billing in this, because she's not in much, and she plays a fairly small part, so I assume she was related to somebody, and it turns out she was Kurt Russell's wife at the time. They had married shortly after meeting on the Elvis movie, so that's why she gets a special appearance credit at the start of the film. Harry Dean Stanton played Brain. This role was first offered to Warren Oates, who we just saw in Stripes, but he fell ill and recommended Stanton for the part. Stanton was in Cool Hand Luke, Kelly's Heroes, Tulane Blacktop, Godfather 2, and closer to this, he did Alien, and then The Black Marble and Wiseblood, which as of two days ago both have mini-sewed Patreon reviews. We saw him last season in Private Benjamin tricking Goldie Hawn into joining the army. He's also in Christine, Repo Man, Paris, Texas, Red Dawn, and one of his later credits was in The Avengers. Yeah. <laughs> you where said, he just has a scene with Hulk. Yeah, yeah. You have a condition. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, also like the, the straight story. Oh, is he in that one? Yeah. With uh, Farnsworth? Adrian Barbeau played Maggie. She was radio DJ Stevie Wayne in The Fog last season. She was also part of Team Cleavage in Cannonball Run a few episodes back. We'll see her next season in Swamp Thing and Creep Show and hear her in The Thing because she does the voice of the computer in that movie. As we've mentioned before, she was married to Carpenter at the time. She would go on to appear in Back to School, Judge Dredd, Argo, and more recently she showed up in an episode of Cowboy Bebop, apparently. Yeah, I was... I, I did not recognize her, but my father recognized her right away. Also, weird that my father was watching Cowboy Bebop with me. Yeah. Whenever I hear her name now, my first thought is always of Captain Murphy from C-Lab 2021 because he was obsessed with her. <laughs> and in one episode, when they're deciding what their robot selves would look like, Spark says, they have to look the same as you. Not me. I'm going to be an Adrian Barbobot. <laughs> Tom Atkins played Remy. The character's name is a reference to Robert Remy, then president of Avco Embassy Pictures. He was Nick Castle, the writer of this film, in The Fog last season, because everyone in The Fog is just named after John Carpenter's friends. Uh, we also saw him as Sergeant Krebs in the Ninth Configuration. He shows up later in Creep Show with Adrian, and Halloween 3, and Night of the Creeps, Lethal Weapon, Maniac Cop, and the remake of My Bloody Valentine, which is no bueno. <laughs> Don't bother. Joe Unger played Taylor, that's uh, Snake's partner in crime for which they were both arrested for robbing the bank at the beginning of the film. Obviously his scenes were cut. The character was named after Don Taylor, director of Escape from the Planet of the Apes and the 77 Island of Dr. Moreau. Unger was also Sergeant Garcia in Nightmare on Elm Street, Carpus in Roadhouse, and Tinker in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. That's the Leatherface one. That's terrible. Frank Doubleday played Romero after George Romero for appearing zombie-ish. He previously played White Warlord in Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13, and he's also a brain surgeon in Space Rage and Razor in Nomads. Those are some pretty cool credits. Yeah. Even <laughs> though I haven't seen those movies. Plus he's got an awesome last name. Doubleday? Double yeah, that's pretty cool. John Strobel played Cronenberg, named after David Cronenberg. That's the doctor who gives him the injections of the explosives. Nancy Stevens played Stewardess, she plays Marion in Halloween, Halloween 2, Halloween Water, and Halloween Kills. And obviously named after Carpenter's friend Stewardess. Right. <laughs> exactly. You got it. Cool. 
Stephen Ford played Secret Service number two. He was a deputy marshal in Cattle Annie and Little Britches earlier this season. He was also the actual son of former President Gerald Ford. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Gerald Ford was actually attacked by one of the Liberation Front groups <laughs> in real life. So it's oh. neat that he was in this movie where a fake president right. was getting attacked by the same groups. I, I thought you were going to go, Gerald Ford died today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gerald Ford. <laughs> Interesting bit of trivia. Um, he was attacked by wolves. Dale E. House played helicopter pilot. He also played helicopter pilot in <laughs> first Monday in October later this season. And also helicopter pilot later in Night of the Comet and Lawnmower Man 2. Do you he, think he can actually pilot a helicopter? No, definitely not. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's just all over his resume, so they assume he can. He's like, yeah. no, I just keep getting Never cast have. for this chair. <laughs> Bob Miner played Duty Sergeant. He was Jackson in Commando. Wally Taylor played Controller. He's Clubber's manager in Rocky Three. Detective Boggs in The Golden Child. And Detective Landis in Night of the Creeps. Bora Silver was theater manager. We just saw him in SOB. He's also Kirsten's grandfather in the horror film Elves. John Deal played Punk. We just had him as Cruiser in Stripes, and last season he popped up silently in Falling in Love Again. Carmen Filpi played Bum. He's also a bum in On the Nickel, a wino in Carbon Copy later this season, Hobo Jack in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Messenger in Beetlejuice, and Old Man Withers in Wayne's World. But... He's got one of those hobo faces. He's oh, the yeah. one who noticed uh, Snake's boots. I think he's in The Wedding Singer, too. He plays the homeless guy in that. Yeah, yeah. Or a he, drunk. He, he's very recognizable as that homeless guy. Yeah, it's him and Patrick Crenshaw are every hobo. I'm trying to think of who Messenger is in Beetlejuice. Yeah, I was trying to think of that, the, too. The guy is like... Uh, oh, who's flat on the wall? Yeah, he's like... Oh, okay. How do I look? There are no mirrors on this oh, side. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> George Buckflower played the drunk who was wearing the president's watch. He was Tommy Wallace in The Fog last season. Later, he's a cook in Starman, a bum in Back to the Future, a security guard in Mac and Me, and a drifter in They Live. He's not just a bum in Back to the Future. He's the former mayor of Hill Valley. <laughs> is he really? Yeah. Well, that's, that's his whole through line is that... He's just credited as bum yeah, on IMDb. In, in 1955, he's... It, it, he's like doing his re-election campaign and that was just a bum on a park bench <laughs> that's great that's so sad for him clay wright played helicopter pilot number three he's also a helicopter pilot in the exterminator and private benjamin al cerullo played helicopter pilot number four he was also a helicopter pilot in simon and nighthawks ox baker played slag he showed up last season as a fighter in battle creek brawl I think I remember that specifically, this guy chasing Jackie Chan around. Roger Bumpus played Dancer. He was Phil Hilton in The Running Man. He's Lewis Tully on The Real Ghostbusters, so he's the voice of Lewis Tully. He's also Professor Membrane on Invader Zim, but he's likely best known as the voice of Squidward on SpongeBob SquarePants. Yeah. He's just one of the people dancing on stage singing about New York. Kathleen Blanchard was the narrator uh opening scenes uncredited unconfirmed and i'm pretty sure this is just wrong uh they're crediting her with the work that jamie lee curtis does at the beginning of the film and they assumed it was her because she provides the voice in the sequel credited and so they were like oh she must have done it in the first movie too but she didn't jamie lee curtis did it in this movie she's listed uh on imdb but uncredited in the film and Deborah Hill, as I said before, is the voice of the computer. She obviously wrote Halloween 1 and 2 with Carpenter and The Fog. 
Um, she also wrote Escape from L.A., the sequel to this film, and she has character credits on all the Halloween sequels and remakes. She was also a regular producer of Carpenter's works. Outside of Carpenter's work, she was also a producer on Cronenberg's Dead Zone, Clue, Big Top Pee-wee, and The Fisher King. I often watch the credits roll and and looking or just kind of keeping an eye out for names. And one of the names that caught my eye was Tony Randall. And I was like, Tony, Tony Randall. Randall. <laughs> I, I feel like we've brought that person up before even. <laughs> the non-Tony Randall, Tony Randall. All right. I think that's everything for Escape from New York. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd. Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. What's that sound? We got one! That's right. It's a new patron, Ray Hughes. As a $5 patron of the show, Ray now has access to 26 full-size 70s reviews and 29 minisodes from 1980. Thank you so much, Ray, for making the show possible. And thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Disney's The Fox and the Hound, which IMDb describes like so. A little fox named Todd and Copper, a hound puppy, vow to be best friends forever. But as Copper grows into a hunting dog, their unlikely friendship faces the ultimate test. We leave you now with a trailer for The Fox and the Hound. you smelling? I'm on the trail or something. Trail? What? I don't know yet. Why, it's, it's you. What do you do that for? We're supposed to do that when we find what we've been tracking. I'm a fox. My name's Todd. What's your name, kid? Mine's Copper. I'm a hound dog. Gee, I bet you'd be good playing hide and seek. You want to try it, Copper? Can I use my nose? <laughs> sure. Okay, now go ahead and close your eyes and count. One, two, three. No, Copper, you can't peek. Oh. Now start again. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. My, my, look at that. A fox and a hound playing together.